This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In important ways, the history of Christianity is closely associated with the development of the book as a medium. We take it for granted that important information, ideas, and doctrines are recorded in books on paper between two covers. We take it for granted that such important documents are collected somewhere and kept by someone for present and future readers. We call these mediators of learning librarians. In the past, we thought of them as guardians of a sort of a holy place, keeping order and keeping patrons quiet. Today, however, all that is up in the air. When millennials, young people aged 18 to 34, want to learn something, they don't first think of a library or a book. They think of the Internet and Wikipedia. What seems novel and even unstable to those of us who grew up in and around libraries is taken for granted by millennials as the way things ought to be. With the advent of Google Books, eBooks, and the like, the future of the printed book as a medium, libraries, and even bookstores as repositories of learning is an open question. So it's a happy thing to have with us James Lund, Library Director of Westminster Seminary, California. He's back on campus after an eight-year absence. He's from the Twin Cities, and he earned his M.A. at Westminster Seminary, California in 1995. He also holds a Master's in Library Science, and he served not only as Library Director here previously for four years, but he has also served city libraries in Minnesota, Northwestern College, and Providence Christian College. Hi, James, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. Dr. Clark. It's good to be back. We are so glad to have you back on campus after your little hiatus. So to let the listener get to know you a little bit, tell us how you got to Escondido as a student back in the 90s, all the way from the Twin Cities. I was attending Northwestern College in Roseville, Minnesota, and was a psychology major initially, and actually ended up being one. But I took Greek. I had an interest in theology, so I started taking Greek. And oh, halfway through the class, uh, a gentleman from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, a graduate of Northwestern College, sat in on Greek class, and he happened to be a Nuthetic counselor. And I've never heard of Nuthetic counseling, had no idea what biblical counseling was, and was introduced to him, and the particular Greek professor was interested in this topic, too. So I got to know the fellow, and a number of the psychology students were interested in what a biblical counseling was versus what we were learning in class in the psychology courses. So we developed a relationship and found out that uh, Nuthetic Counseling was actually based on a theology, and here came the J. Adams books, and there were plenty of them. So I started pouring through J. Adams and uh, actually started to learn Reformed theology. And uh, through that mentorship, eventually, I went and took Hebrew then at Luther Seminary in St. Paul and decided to uh, attend seminary. And when the time came to choose a seminary, the choice was clearly, you know, Westminster in Philadelphia or Westminster in California. And because the weather is a lot nicer out here and being a native Minnesotan, I thought, it'd be kind of nice to come to Southern California. So I trucked out here in the middle of summer in my 1977 white, rusty old F-150, no air conditioning, drove through the middle of Baker, California. was the world's largest thermometer there, I think? In the middle of the afternoon, because one buddy of mine who was in Las Vegas told me that was the coolest time in the afternoon. And what do I know? I'm from Minnesota. Every time's cool. (laughs) 
And sure <laughs> enough, I come through town down that big grade in my white truck, and my truck's overheating. I have the hood kind of up a little bit, all the windows down, and in my shorts. And I look up at that thermometer, and it said 122. I just remember my feeling my body overheating, and I put a bag of ice on my head to cool myself <laughs> down. So I'm literally in my underwear with a bag ahead of my eyes with a bottle of Snapple, which was kind of silly at that time. I should have had real water. And my truck's overheating with the heater wide open, because my dad always told me, you know, if it overheats, turn your heater wide open. So 120-some degrees coming through Baker, California, and that truck started spewing oil from the transmission and everything, but I got to the Burger King in the next town, and I spent the next eight hours in that Burger King drinking water and just recovering until I finally pulled into Escondido the following morning. So that was my first experience coming into California. I didn't turn around and go home, well, because my truck wouldn't make it. So I came here because I had forgotten Greek already, so I thought I'd spend my time in the library over the summer and refresh my Greek, and that's what I did, and that's when I met our former librarian that you and I are very familiar with. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So how on earth does someone go from being a psychology student to a seminary student to a librarian? Well, that's a good question, Scott, because as a psychology major, there aren't a whole lot of things you can do to be employed. So I started working in the social service area with the developmentally disabled. I worked in group homes, managed day programs for the developmentally disabled, and eventually worked for a college classmate of mine who started a group home company. So that was the route I went into, and I quickly discovered that that was not my future. I loved working with the clients. I did not like working with the staff. It was so hard to keep competent, quality staff for the price we could pay for a wage and the amount of responsibility you have. So after graduating from seminary, well, we're going back and forth, but I mean, that's where I started thinking about, well, what do I really want to do? And that's where I thought about the ministry, maybe doing counseling, because, you know, every psychology major is always told they're such good listeners, and you're so helpful. So I thought, well, let's continue down this path, but let's do Christian counseling. So that's how I ended up here. So after graduation, though, I had planned on doing an MDiv. I actually came in in the MDiv program. I had a very poor experience in my internship, which led me to realization that I really wasn't a very good listener or a counselor and probably would not do well on that side of the pastorate. Although I love the academic side, Professor Baugh and Professor Fatato at that time were just fantastic in the languages, and I really enjoyed those. So I took all those courses and changed to, I think, Master's in Theology or something like that, that program. But at the end, you know, vocationally, what do you do? I mean, I can't go into the pastorate necessarily. I don't have that call. Now what? Do I go back to the group homes, and that's what I did. And that lasted a month, and I decided this is just not for me. So that's when I called the former librarian and asked him, how do I become a librarian? Because I thought that was a great job. And he told me that I needed to go get a master's degree in library science, of which I remember chuckling over the phone, and he told me, Lon, this is not a joke. You need to get a master's degree in library science. And then he told me where to go. He said, Wisconsin has a couple programs. So off I went to University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, of which now a number of my predecessors now have attended there, Dr. Catherine Van Drunen, who I graduated with in 95, and who is now working for me in the library a little bit. I believe Mr. Bales attended there online, so... So this is an interesting exploration of how vocation works. And I think it's helpful for the listener to understand when we talk about vocation and figuring out what you're going to do with yourself, sometimes people think of a kind of mystical experience where they sit in a quiet room and listen for voices from the Lord. But you certainly were praying for wisdom and guidance, but you were also making an honest assessment of your abilities and interests and gifts, and you were consulting with other people. And through a process, you came to a clearer understanding of what your vocation is. 
That's right, Scott. I mean, as you have to go through the experiences, you have to, you know, Jay Adams talks about making decisions in some of these books. And sometimes the Lord doesn't give us exactly what we're supposed to do in the Bible. He gives us principles. And as long as you're not violating, I think it's in the section about picking a spouse. You know, there's a lot of variety of spouses you can pick. The Bible will eliminate a lot of them, but you might have a quite wide variety. So same way in vocations. You know, there are certain things we clearly can't do, but there's a lot of opportunity out there. So where are your skills? Where are the natural talents? the Lord gave you. Well, it just led one thing to another. And of course, as a sovereign God, he opened things up and closed other things. And on my way, I went and off to library school. And in the course of doing that, you found that this is something that suited you, that you could do as a way of serving the Lord that was useful and valuable, that made use of your gifts, preparation, training, and so forth. Yes, my obsessive compulsiveness, the desire to organize and control. Yes, all librarians <laughs> have that, even those of us without buns in our hair, or those of us without hair, like you and I share. <laughs> so in management, too, I have a passion for management. I'm pretty good with it. I'm pretty decent with people actually managing people, and all those go into running any organization. But combining that in the library, of course, with my academic background and my love for academics, it just it was a really good fit right from the beginning. And so that gets us to one of the things that we wanted to talk about, which is the future of the library. But one more thing before we get there. Tell us a little bit about your theological development. You hinted at it a little bit. You're sitting in psychology classes, and you had an interest in theology. You had an interest in biblical languages, and those things sort of led you in a particular direction, in your case, through reading Jay Adams and hearing that kind of stuff. So talk about your theological journey towards becoming a confessional Reformed Christian. Well, Northwestern College is a—most of the theology professors there came from Dallas Theological Seminary, so it was pretty orthodox dispensational. And all of our coursework in that really divided up the scriptures in that odd dispensational way. And when you read J. Adams, you don't get that. You get Reformed theology. You get covenant theology. And that whole idea of covenant was just fascinating. And when we went through Jay's book— but then leading on to Warfield and so on and so forth. I think what hooked me was the unity of the Testaments. And being a Baptist at that time, even though having grown up as a Lutheran, the whole idea of infant baptism when I came to Northwestern College, I kind of rejected that whole notion of infant baptism because of that theology. And being that's always seems to be for the Baptist, the, the hang-up to going over to the Reform side, it took a long time. And I think that's what finally did it for me, is that when you read about Moses and Abraham and how they knew Christ, and they did things because of Christ, that unity that it all points back to Christ, they were looking forward, we were looking back. Once I saw that, that the gospel is the same for all people, everyone where types and shadows for us realized, realized in that sense. It just did it for me one day. And that's where I realized that I'm no longer a Baptist in that sense. I'm not a dispensationalist. I'm Reformed. But I didn't know what that really meant at that time. And I became then a member of the Christian Reformed Church, started reading the confessions and that kind of stuff. And it just fit. It just fit. And uh, that's where it went. And it fit because you were reading Scripture and what you were reading in these Reformed writers was helping you to understand more clearly what it was you had been seeing in Scripture. Is that a fair way to put it? That's a very fair way to put it. That's exactly right. That the secondary literature supported the primary. That's library terms there for you, Scott. Well, we, we use that sometimes. Okay, so libraries and books. And when we come back after this break, I want you to talk about the future of the library in an internet age, in a Wikipedia age, in an age that is arguably becoming a post-codex post-book age. How do we save the book? Should we save the book? And what's the future of learning? And when we come back right after that, I want you to answer that question. 
I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Are books obsolete? Well, no. Because the medium itself is enduring, and that's one of the biggest questions that we're all wrestling with as librarians and readers, too. That paper has endured many, many millennium, I guess almost you could say these days, and it's trustworthy in the sense when something's written down on the paper, it can't be modified. The digital form can be modified in a number of ways, and Dr. Clark, you did a Sunday school on it a few weeks ago talking about that, that if you take an image, you can make that image look like anything. If you take a digital text, it's digitized based is ones and zeros, you can modify that any way you wish. Yesterday was interesting, I was in the periodical room, and here was a gentleman, a student, who had the Westminster Journal open, he had a smartphone out, taking snapshots of every Every page. I had never thought of that. You know, we're scanning stuff in constantly, but here's a guy who's taking photographs and putting them into a PDF, and he's going to use that at home. Well, you can take that and edit that and change it. There's the whole notion of what's permanent and what's trustworthy with this and duplication. My first thought as a librarian was copyright. Hey, you know, you can't copy a whole book with your phone. I mean, Google's trying that, and they've done it, and they get sued. The litigation is still going on. That permanence, that idea of permanence is challenging, I think, especially for the academic arena. What can we trust, what we can't trust? And I think the academic side is probably a little more conservative on that than the popular side. In the public library, it's popular literature. There's very little that's enduring in value in my public library collection. So whether it's Dan Brown or what have you, ebooks, you know, you have it for a while, it goes away. Let's back up even further and answer a more fundamental question, particularly for a millennial reader who may just assume the priority and future permanence of ebooks. What is a book? Let's just talk about ebooks in the context of what I've been experiencing with the ebook. In nature of the publishing, in a sense, you have, and this is what's been happening in the publisher with the big six from New York that publish most of the print material that is popular, that sells a lot. We have a lot of little publishers that sell nothing, but these are the big publishers, and they control a lot of the publishing world, and what they decide to do gets dictated to the rest. And that goes back to the Amazon and the Apple situation with the pricing of ebooks. As you recall, when Amazon started up with the Kindle, there were pricing their bestsellers at $9.99. Well, the publishers were getting their money, but Amazon had the freedom in the licensing agreement to make market share by selling them for a loss. Amazon took that loss. What did the publishers, what were they afraid of? The value of it, the perception of the value that books are only worth $9.99, no matter if they're paper or they're digital. So the publishers didn't like this model at all. Well, here comes Steve Jobs, the crafty one himself. Well, I'll cut you a deal. We'll do it a little differently. You set the price 
price and then we'll negotiate that price and we'll sell it for that. Steve Jobs set up the agency model for pricing and got the rest of the publishers to latch on to that. And what was charged then against them was price fixing. See, Steve was going after Amazon and Amazon's dominance in that industry, in that area. Well, of course, the Justice Department didn't like that, so we've had this lawsuit that's been going on, and I think almost all have settled except for Apple. So we're now back to that environment where Amazon can now discount their ebooks, but the publishers still don't like that model because they don't think there's a future in it. It's difficult to sell because eventually if people won't pay what they think they need in order to pay their authors and give what they need to in order to produce and support publishing, publishing itself and authorship and writing is really at stake here. So I think that's the main thing that's heading for libraries is what do you do with this? The other thing is that they won't let you check them out. And this is what was happening in the public library is that you hear the stories and you hear the stories and you read the stories in the newspaper about, you know, go to your library and check out an ebook. Well, you have to realize that the price of an ebook is three times the cost of a paper book for a public library because they are so afraid of this copying thing from the Napster background so that when they do give us a digital copy, they regulate it like they do a regular book. So you can only check out your ebook copy for three weeks. Well, there's no reason technologically why you would have to do that. But for revenue's sake, for security's sake, they write DRM or digital rights management into it and make it a complete hassle to check out one of these ebooks, which limits what the library can do with that. I mean, the budgets aren't you know indefinite in a public library. So the question is always asked, well, if I have to spend $60 on an ebook, would I not rather... Is it more responsible to buy, say, five copies of the hardback book and send it out? What's more responsible with the money that we have? So this whole notion that everything is going e-digital, at least in the library world with circulating e-books, is right now a fallacy. It can't happen because we can't get the material people want, we can't afford to buy it, and we can't circulate it. You wait longer for an e-book now in line in the queue for a hold than you do for any paper book. It's just not available. And then right now, there's no solution to this. But there are real advantages. With all the disadvantages, there are real advantages to having an ebook. For example, on my iPad, when I travel, I can carry with me hundreds and hundreds of books that I can read that I don't have to lug with me on the airplane and hassle with all of that. And a lot of the transitory literature that I might want to look at is probably anymore really not worth putting in paper. So there is value there. And yet, at the same time, stuff that's worth keeping, worth recording, is, as you suggested earlier, maybe in jeopardy if it's not also being put in paper and put in some sort of repository where it can be accessed in the future. So talk about the future of the book and what would happen if we lose what we have historically thought of, traditionally thought of as books. Another interesting question that nobody really has an answer to, but I can give you my thoughts on it. One of the things I've heard lately is the I think the Library of Congress is trying to um, catalog tweets. Twitter. Now think about that. Really? That's where, at least in that context of the library world, they're trying to collect everything that's being produced on Twitter. Okay, how valuable is that really? Does that really need to be preserved? In the sense, this whole notion of popularity, the popular culture versus maybe that which is more enduring or long-lasting. I think you brought that up too. What needs to be in a medium that probably will endure longer? And again, it goes back to you can change the digital. 
who is in control of that digital copy? And they get the VHS and beta issue. The old tape, there was two formats, correct? One was VHS, one was this thing called a beta. In fact, the library, I think, still has beta in it in the back. <laughs> and it was a duel over that. And I think we've had multiple duels. We have software duels and Apple versus XP and that kind of stuff. And one eventually wins over. Back then, it was VHS that won over. But, you know, it is that question of endurance and how will it endure when it's in digital form and can you trust it? Where in paper, I see a trend where you may have things that are more academic sticking with paper, but the more popular publishing is definitely going E because the enduring value of that is just less. The half-life is less. And that's what the public library. A public library collection is popular. You circuit, you get it out, you weed constantly, you just roll it over. Well, in this library over here, we don't do that. We have cassette tapes, similar to a VHS, it's just smaller, but it's for audio. And we have a number of those that, unfortunately, they're wearing out. That medium is wearing out because it was magnetic. Plus, you don't have the reader, the players anymore. But there's valuable information that was put on that technology that now is disappearing. It's eroding. And we can't recover it anymore. If you play it, you break it. It's done. So you have this whole kind of a gray area. But when you go back to paper, you know, we can seemingly assure with the technology in paper that it will endure under the right environment. And it has for millennium. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It is a real open question, too. Once someone creates a purely digital product, as you already suggested, it's not necessarily fixed and the past, as a historian, I'm conscious of this, can be changed. You can go back in, and if you don't like how the story came out or something isn't quite favorable, and this happens all the time, for example, on Wikipedia. Somebody writes a Wikipedia entry, and the person about whom it's written can go back and change it, and you have battles as to what that Wikipedia entry is actually going to say. So the past is never really fixed. It's completely fluid, which is a brave new world. One thought came to mind was the editing process. You know, when something finally gets into paper form, it's gone through fact-checking and editors and that kind of stuff, and this is the final form, unless a new edition comes out. Well, what is the final form of an ebook? When is it not always open to editing without being republished? It can constantly be changed, and I think that's an issue that a lot of us are kind of struggling with, especially in, I think, academia. What can you really trust? What can't you? And the other thing with ebooks too, is that they're licensed as software. I don't know if you know this or not, but when a public library even buys that copy, we don't own it. We have a license to it. Under the law, it is looked at as a piece of software, and that is significantly different and important because there's a doctrine that we can, with a book, we have the right to do with it what we want as a library. That's the whole basis of a public library. We when we buy it, we can circulate it, we can make limited copy of it, we can sell it. You can't do that with an ebook. You don't have those rights. So that's a fundamental change because we're now looking at transmitting information in a way that keeps the publisher in permanent control of what's being disseminated. And as we were saying before, nothing is finally fixed. Well, this has been good and interesting. So let's finish with this. We've been talking about things being elusive and life-changing. When you go to bed at night and we live in a world of flux and change and uncertainty. Well, what is it about being reformed that you learned here at Westminster Seminary, California, that you've come to appreciate as a reformed Christian? What is it about the reformed faith that allows you to go to sleep at night? 
Well, uh, being a storyteller, and I'll have a story for you to illustrate this, because last Sunday we had a couple that came into church, and they were new to this faith, and they were new to the Reformed faith, and they heard about the church on the radio, and they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. So we struck up a conversation with them before, and she said she had been attending a, a Lutheran church, but she wanted the Bible in her hand during the service. So she asked me, well, how would you describe this church? And I thought, you know, in some ways, trying to communicate with her, we're a Reformation church, we're kind of like Lutherans with a real high view of the sovereignty of God, and we take the commandments seriously. And in that sense, also, I think Dr. Godfrey always said it well, that, you know, the Christian faith is a simple faith. It's a simple life of faith and repentance. And I think the simpleness of what our faith is and the sovereignty of God, when you go to bed at night, that's what you rest on. I think we all do. And that the security that we have in Christ, what he's done for us, and that God is sovereign and he's going to see us through these matters. You know, we just moved. You know, everyone goes through a move. We just moved from the Midwest down here in the middle of the school year and in a bad housing market and an expensive one out here. You know, the anxiety is always there, but at the dinner table as a family, we always prayed about these things and looked what happened. There were times where we never thought we were going to get out here and our stuff wasn't going to get here. We never find a house, but it worked out and the Lord showed and he provided for us. So in that sense, it is it is good to be under a sovereign God. And, you know, when we go through the confessions and we read those as a family and we confess them at church, it always reminds you of how good a God we have. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.